This is the Scott Radley Show podcast. Scott Radley Show, Ted Michaels in for Scott. This time last night we were talking a lot about the situation, uh, the very scary situation at Brantford, but uh, I understand that the evacuation order has just been lifted, but we still want to find out uh, the feelings of the people in Brantford. And uh, joining us uh, on the line to talk about that is... Uh, Jared Hoyliston, who was uh, on the air with us last night and joins us again. Jared, how you doing, sir? Okay, Jared uh, is hopefully there. Hello. Jared, you how are you, Jared? Doing well, doing well today. Okay, let's uh, start off. First of all, the evacuation order uh, has been lifted, uh, I understand, but um, you were out and about today going to work or what have you. Uh, when you came back to the city this afternoon, uh, what did you see? Okay, so uh, right now we know that uh, the the ice flow has moved down river. They briefly shut what was called the Cockshot Bridge. It's at the south end of our city, but um, to allow the ice flow to go through, they've opened up the main bridge, um, the Lorne Bridge uh, between downtown and West Brant. That's the major thoroughfare through Brantford to get back and forth. That's open again. Um, our mayor, Chris Reel, just got done a live report uh, saying that uh, – you know, we still are under a state of emergency. We're still just a little bit concerned. Um, and when they're ready to, they have to get their engineers and city workers in to assess if there's any structural damage to bridges and the houses. And then they're going to let the, the the homeowners back down. But they're still asking people, don't go to the river. Uh, stay away from the area and let the professionals do their do their work. Well, that's um, perhaps I was giving out wrong information. So the evacuation has been lifted in identified uh, identified flood threat areas. But he, you're saying that the mayor said that the evacuation order is still in place. It's. It, I mean, it's not still in place. Um, I guess you could say the state of emergency is still in place. The evacuation right. order. Some people have been and it can go back. But the thing is about going back is. They may get back to their houses, but they still do not have power or gas hooked back on. So, um, and they still have water in the basement. So there, there's there's still that threat that you go back. There still could be electrical issues. So we know the water's receded. We know the ice flow has moved down, and we hopefully the worst of it's over. But now it's the point we still have to keep people safe, and that's what Chris was. Uh, I'm kind of emphasizing during his press conference. I think it was about a half an hour, 45 minutes ago. Now, one of the things we talked about last night is you're one of the people that was helping uh, to put all the uh, the pets that were at the uh, Brantford SPCA. You took them out to the Brantford Airport. Uh, uh, any idea when they will be allowed to go back to uh, what was their home at the SPCA? Uh, I don't have any words yet. Um, I haven't spoken with Robin today. Um, I, I've been following the Facebook post for the SPCA. And uh, the SPCA uh, launched a, um, I guess you could say, there's a campaign of needing volunteers and food. And at this time, they posted that there's tons of food, tons of volunteers coming out, blankets and such. So um, they're doing very well down there today, and they're thanking Brantford for their support. And when you were talking to the people of the city, uh, a lot of people are saying, and I think you were in the same boat yesterday, that uh, people have never seen anything as bad as it was for the last couple of days. Yeah, no, I, I mean, this is all new to us Brantford people that, you know, that grew up in the, the 80s and 90s. Um, this is all new to us. So to be in a state of emergency, to see uh, it handled very professionally uh, and the outcry or uh, the outpouring of support from all the, the Brantford people willing to help has made this uh, an easy, I guess we'll call it a transition Um and hopefully we still have those volunteers when it's time to go back and help these uh, these flood victims uh, help uh, clean up.
and get back to normal life. It's still concerning because we did mention on the air this time last night that they were telling basically outsiders and bystanders and people not from the area not to go down there to snap pictures. And I saw a shot today on, on one of the networks of a guy who admitted that he came down just because he wanted to take pictures. I still can't, well, maybe I can, human nature being what it is, but I still can't believe that people are still going down there when they have no right being down there. Right. So, I mean, even today when they opened up some bridges, they, they're opening up the bridges for traffic, but they, they, they stress, do not stop on the bridges, do not get out of the car, and do not go on the bridge as a pedestrian. So they're trying to get that message across, and, you know, and uh, it's the right message to have people away. But human nature draws people in. There is uh, walkways and avenues that people can get up and walk and look at all these uh, areas. Um, but, you know, let's cooperate with the authorities. Let's make everything safe and, and hopefully stay away. You know, there's thousands of images and now and pictures online and social media. Uh, be safe and look at it through those. Any idea? Uh, have you heard uh, when people will be given the all clear? Uh, maybe as early as tomorrow, I hear? Yeah, it may be tomorrow. Uh, I don't want to speculate. I'm not confirming anything, but uh, judging by what Chris said in his press conference, um, you know, they just want to make sure they're dotting their I's and crossing their T's before they get everybody back down there. And before we wrap up, we did mention that uh, you were the man who uh, did the drone video yesterday of the uh, damage that was caused. Uh, you mentioned last night we, we, you were going to check uh, what happened on social media when we, we finished our conversation last night. Uh, has that died down, or are you still getting a lot of response? response on that drone video uh i'm still getting a lot and uh, just actually checking right now to see what our like our views at but uh for a little uh a little page or a little uh a video we are now um actually i'm just getting to it now uh, it looks as though we're 184,000 views and almost 5,000 shares uh, uh of that video that's uh since gone mini viral we'll call it Wow. Well, uh, I'm hoping that things uh, do calm down. By the way, coming up after the break, we will give all of our our listeners in the area and the people in Brantford uh, all the information from Brantford about the openings and the closings and the power update, things to do and things not to do. So uh, we want to thank our guests, uh, Jared, for uh, dropping by tonight. Jared Halston, who shot the uh, drone video and has been helping a lot of people. I hope it's a calm night for you, and I hope it's a great weekend and things get back to normal relatively soon. Thanks very much for the time. All right. Thanks for having me. Cheers. That's uh, Jared Hoylston from Brantford, as we say, who shot the video, which you can see at 900CHML.com. And uh, you heard uh, all the people that have been commenting on the retweets and the views and what have you and the shares. Uh, It was a a video that showed the spectacular uh, damage that Mother Nature can cause. And, uh, well, hopefully things will be back to normal relatively soon. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. This is The Scott Radley Show. Ted Michelson for Scott Radley. Tonight, just before we uh, wrap up this uh, segment about Brantford, here is the uh, the latest update for people that are listening or have relatives in Brantford. Uh, the good news, the city confirmed water levels have now receded a little bit, that the ongoing flooding, uh, the threat of the flooding has been dissipated. So effective, well, right now, uh, the evacuation order that was uh, previously identified uh, has now been lifted for flood threat areas, including Holmdale, Old West, Brandon, Eagle Place, and the bridges. We've talked about the Lauren Bridge is reopened as in the VMP, also known as the BSAR. Now, other openings and closures for our friends in Brantford tonight. The Brantford Charity, Charity Casino will open tonight at 8 o'clock. 
So the Charity Casino reopened tonight at 8. The Brantford Farmer's Market closed tomorrow, will open on Saturday. And obviously this is important. City trails, pedestrian bridges along the river closed until further assessment. The Brantford Civic Center will reopen tomorrow. The Child's Paradise 2 Daycare Center will open uh, regular hours. Um, schools, though, remain closed in Brantford tomorrow. Now, we talked a few minutes ago with our guest, uh, Jared Holzman, about uh, the SPCA and how he was helping people and the staff there take care of the pets. Uh, pickup arrangements can now be made. That number, 519 756 20. The evacuation center at Assumption College stays open until 8 o'clock tonight. Now, the uh, other thing, of course, is when people that were evacuated go back to their homes, uh, they don't know what they'll find, and they don't know exactly what they will be encountering. So when you get to your home or you have relatives that will be doing this, if flooding has occurred, don't enter the basement. Obviously, if you suspect water has risen above the level of the electrical outlets, the baseboard heaters, the furnace, or is near, near your panel. If the flood water has risen above the outlets or the baseboard heaters or furnace, contact Brantford Power to arrange for the power to be disconnected. If you see a down power line, then by all means stay back 10 meters or the length of a school bus. Call 911. Now, uh, please note, uh, people that uh, are entering their homes or are concerned about gas problems, uh, the, the Union Gas Update says they will need access to homes and businesses to complete the relights. Company reps will be uh, showing proper identification. We've got to make sure about that, obviously. We ask that you clear debris from around your natural gas appliances and keep your meter clear. And also, residents and businesses are asked not to attempt to relight natural gas appliances on their own. Now, the other stuff is when you go, you'll be looking, of course, in your fridge. We talked about this yesterday. So some of the things that you should do uh, when you don't use any appliances or heating or pressure or sewer system, what have you, but uh, clean up the area if you can. Make sure you wear gloves and masks. Use pails, mops, and squeegees, plastic garbage bags, detergent, large containers for soaking bedding, clothing, linens, and clotheslines. Now, if people still do want to help out in Brantford and uh, they um, probably need some help, uh, you can call 519-752-0890. That's 519-752-0890. Zero. And this reminder, and this kind of goes with the people that have been showing up, snapping pictures, when they were told to stay away, you're reminded, use extreme caution around all water bodies. The banks are still very slippery. Parents are encouraged to keep their kids and pets away from all water courses and off frozen water bodies, which will be extremely unsafe because of the warming trend. So that kind of encapsulates a little bit what's been going on in Brantford as things are getting reasonably back to normal. The uh, state of emergency still is ex- uh, exists, but the evacuation uh, order uh, has been lifted. So people are ex- probably slowly going back to their homes. I don't know if they'll be going back tonight. Uh, they're going to need a lot of uh, flashlight and power to obviously get into their house. Hopefully they'll be back in uh, tomorrow morning. And uh, stay with CHML News because we'll have an update on what's happening in Brantford uh, coming up uh, tomorrow and through the rest of the day. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML.
This is the Scott Radley Show. Ted Michaels in for Scott tonight uh, here on 900 CHML. Well, I thought these words were really prophetic a couple of days ago. There obviously was a lot of pressure, and, and but being calm and cool really was the key. You know, I stayed calm throughout the whole thing and, and just focused on my runs. And, and uh, worked, I've been working on my mental game for since I started driving. And That's pilot. Justin Cribbs, who along with brakeman Alexander Kopatz, clinched uh, the Canadian duo's first bobsleigh podium at the Olympics. And I'm always fascinated when you hear him talk about his performance. I mean, we can get into the whole physical stuff in a moment, but uh, it's the mental game that I think separates the uh, cream from the, uh, the rest of the crop, so to speak. And joining us for a few minutes to talk about this is a sports psychiatrist, and we're so pleased to be able to talk to Dr. Carla Edwards, who joins us tonight. Dr. Edwards, Carla, how are you? I'm good, Ted. Thank you. How are you? Excellent. So let's, first of all, right off the top... Uh, you're a sports psychiatrist, and you deal with uh, treating mental illness and psychological struggles in athletes. Before we get into the whole mind game thing when it comes to performing at the Olympics, um, is anxiety, depression, mental illness, I mean, we see these athletes, we put them, if you will, on the pedestal, but basically they're all just people like the rest of us. Is this a bigger issue than maybe people think it is? Uh, you know, I think it is. Uh, when I first started working with elite athletes, uh, I, I was initially sort of starstruck and thinking, wow, these people are professionals. We see them on TV. We see them competing for the big podiums. And really getting to know them and getting to know their stories, it became very clear that they're actually just regular people like you and I. They are just exceptionally gifted and very talented. And in fact, they're put in positions quite frequently in which they face pressures that you and I will never, ever face. So they kind of do face more pressures than we do. And I think erroneously people assume that they're infallible, that they have uh, a strength that the regular people don't have. But in fact, they do face mental illness and other struggles at the same rates that the regular population does. Do they put a lot more pressure on themselves uh, mentally, knowing, for example, that uh, in this case, Justin Cribbs, he had to nail the final run and he did, but do they put more pressure in your conversations with them than maybe the average person thinks they do? Absolutely. These people have exceptionally high standards for themselves and throughout their entire development as athletes, uh, essentially the pressure is more internal than external. You know, we worry about teenagers and, and how much uh, of their challenges they face by parents putting excessive pressures or, or coaches being unreasonable. But by and large, in my experience, a lot of it comes from themselves, and we end up trying to work with the athletes to to help them have a more human approach to themselves. But when they get to the big stage, I mean, they go there expecting to lay down their best run all the time. When it comes down to fractions of seconds that we see in these races, to us, the, the observer, it seems like, wow, the pressure is that much more. I mean, the stakes are, are that much more precise, but essentially the pressure is the same. These people have to face each race, each run, with the same level of intensity that they have from run one to run three. It was interesting uh, reading and hearing what Tessa Virtue said uh, after their skate, and that's another example, which we'll talk about in a minute. But she was saying how, you know, yeah, they skated last, but basically they went out and skated for themselves. They just enjoyed the moment to wrap up 21 years mm -hmm. of training and what have you. To me, that's mind-boggling that she admitted that, yeah, there were some nerves, but, but basically it was almost like a sense of, of calm came over them. 
Is that what you found watching them on uh, the other night? First of all, those two individuals, they're just incredible. And it, it just was such an emotional experience watching them compete and and just be. And I think you could hear the commentators as they were, uh, you know, reporting on the skate. The difference that set them aside from the other athletes is that it looked effortless. And I think to be able to establish that sense of calm, that sense of effortlessness to just be and to be present and to just, you know, execute if, if an athlete is able to establish that level of preparedness, the effort goes away. And if they can do that, those are the athletes that are most successful. Now, before we get into, and we will talk about this after the break, um, you deal, of course, with, uh, with athletes and what have you. You are based, you're the sports psychiatrist at McMaster University. Is the issue of the mental game and pressure and anxiety for student-athletes so much different than what it is for Olympic athletes, for example? No, I think it actually is very similar, and it can even be very similar for the recreational athlete who is training for the Around the Bay race, for example. The preparedness skills are very similar across all groups, and uh, the preparation steps are the same. It may just vary based on the intensity at which they have to do it and the frequency uh, going into whatever events they're going to do. You know, it's funny. You talk about the, the Around the Bay, and, of course, I'm, as always, with Team CHML doing the, the 5K. My frustration is as, as I get older, I find I can't do the stuff that I used to do. I'm, <laughs> I'm rehabbing an injury. I don't like it. I'm miserable. <laughs> How do you talk to somebody like myself? Should I just embrace the moment and shut up? Well, a part of uh, a development as an athlete is our bodies do start to change and, and fail us a little bit as we get older. And in some of the developmental theories, they would actually call anything anybody beyond the age of 25 as old age, surprisingly. But, but that essentially refers to the fact that our, our physical skills start to change based on our physical changes and injuries and rehabilitation. But that's when cognitively our mental skills start to develop more. And that's when you see people start to develop more as leaders and as coaches and as individual athletes, that is the time when you need to really focus on developing the mental skills and um, other procedures to get you ready in a different way. And your body can learn how to execute in a different way, but just as effectively. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. We continue our conversation about the mental game when it comes to athletics. And our guest uh, from McMaster University, she is the sports psychiatrist there, uh, Dr. Carla Edwards. Uh, Carla, let's talk about now uh, what you tell people who come in and say, okay, how do I deal with knowing, for example, that I'm going last and I have to nail this jump or go and skate uh, the performance of my life. What do you tell them? Are there any words or what have you that uh, helps them focus on what will be the big moment, maybe the biggest moment in their athletic life? Essentially what these athletes need to learn is how to control the elements that are within their control. And that doesn't always include the weather, for example, or the you know slope conditions and those types of things, but they can control what is within their control. That includes their preparation leading up to the event, uh, days leading up to the event, the day before, the day of, and the competition itself. That includes very specific physical preparation, mental preparation, mental exercises that they would do to get their bodies in the best physiological condition for peak performance. And if they're able to do that, they can replicate that at any time, at any place, regardless of the stakes, regardless of what order they go in, they should be able to reestablish that state 
of readiness and presence and awareness so they can they can perform and deliver anytime. Is visualization a big part of what you talk to athletes about? It's a significant component. Uh, from the mental side of things, a, a part of it is relaxation. So relaxation not to the point where they feel sedated and sluggish, but relaxed to the point where you know their blood pressure, their heart rate is at a perfect kind of state where they can react and, and be able to move in whichever way without being too tense or too tentative. Um, transitioning from a relaxed state into sort of a state of excitatory meditation where they're able to evoke very positive, strong emotional memories of previous successes. And to marry those together as they transition then into a visualization, which is a very powerful tool that they can control within their minds. They can inform them based on highlight reels or other video that they've seen of themselves. But they have the power of being able to look at themselves performing to excellence from a variety of different uh, viewpoints, from their own first-person viewpoint, from a third-person spectator viewpoint. They can rewind. They can focus on different parts of things. I've worked with some of the bobsleigh athletes, and, and it's really neat being able to break down some very specific parts of, of their sport. It's, it's such a different type of sport, but they all have such intricate roles, and the timing is so important from the push to who jumps into the sled next and, and to, to the little bungee cord that the pilot uses. So each individual person can focus on whichever part of the skill they really want to focus on. They can perfect it mentally. They can rehearse it thousands of times before actually having to physically do the action so that by the time they do it, they don't have to think about it anymore. Really removed a lot of the thinking at the moment. How much uh, is breathing a part? Because everybody always says, you know, if, if, if people get stressed and or anxiety kicks in, it's like breathe, pause for a moment, couple of cleansing breaths. Is that too simplistic to say, or is that a big part of it as well? Breathing is essentially the foundation, and breathing is the first thing to go when we tense up and when we get anxious. So taking those first few breaths is, is very, very important, and it's probably the quickest, most reliable way to do mini relaxations in the middle of a competition, for example. Fencers have only two seconds to reset before they have to engage again, so they have to do something really quickly. So part of the relaxation that I do with my athletes in their whole progression is establishing their breathing first. That precedes all of the other things that they do and is actually the foundational element of all of their skills. All right. Now, just before we wrap up, and you kind of uh, mentioned the Around the Bay, and I know that uh, people are training. There's a lot of what I call newbies uh, who come in and train and what have you, and you see them on race day. They've got the deer in the headlights. Their eyes get really <laughs> wide, and they start breathing really hard, and I think, aha, uh-huh, yeah. I've got you. What do you say to okay. them? Is it, again, too simplistic to say just enjoy the journey and don't put so much pressure on yourself? Well, I think that the key with something like that is really to focus on your individual expectations, to, to try to drown out all of the noise and all the people around you, because that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what the person next to you is running. What matters is your goal when you go there and really trying to keep an eye on that. And with all of the athletes who I've treated, they often say, when I stick to my game plan, I actually do quite well. When I stray from that, that's when things start to fall apart. So the important thing for the newbies or the rookies uh, to remember when they go there is go there with their own personal expectations. Try not to be influenced by those around them and really try to stay true to your training. Trust your training and you know yourself as a runner, there are times in the race when your whole body burns and feels like it's on fire. What I tell my athletes is, you know what, everybody else at that very same stage is feeling that very same pain. So 
if you can find a way to drown that out, stay focused on your goal and find that next gear, that's going to get you the rest of the way. That's the key, though, isn't it, is knowing how to shut off the pain. And uh, what right. do you do? Do do you try, try to go to that inevitable happy place that everybody talks about? <laughs> well, we hear that all the time, don't we? I think a part of it is, is really taking a step back and looking at, in reality, how much time is left in that race when you are feeling that pain and looking at the big scope of things. So in some of the sprinters that I treat or some of the more the quicker races, you kind of go, well, how long is it left in that race by the time that that pain hits? And for some of them, it's like, well, there's two and a half minutes left. I'm like, okay, do you think that you can push through that? Do you think you can f- find that extra gear? Because everything that you're training for is really for that next two and a half minutes. In the big scheme of things, it's a really small period of time. So I think if you can change your reference point, and again, understand that everybody else is in that same place, and if you can be that person to find that extra gear and focus on that finish line, that might be able to bring you there a little bit faster maybe. Dr. Carla Edwards, fascinating look at the mind game when it comes to sports. Thank you for taking the time. I, I plan on on talking to you before the Around the Bay just to convince myself that everything's okay. So we'll definitely be in touch between now and then. Anytime. Thank thank you for the time. Appreciate it. Have a good night. Thank you, Ted. Bye. Dr. Carla, what a fabulous, what a great topic and a wealth of information. So there you go. So the pain will come. It's just a matter of blocking it out. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. As caregivers, there's 8 million of them, unrecognized, unpaid. They juggle full-time careers with parents, spouses, and children leaving little to no free time for anything else. The number is growing rapidly, and it is a global issue. And joining us uh, to talk about that is Dr. Yvette Liu, who joins us. Dr. Liu, thank you for joining us. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Thank you for having me today. Now let's uh, talk, first of all, about this website. It's called Stories for Caregivers. How did this come about? This came about because we wanted to highlight the needs of caregivers. Over 8 million Canadians, or 28% of the population, are caregivers. And when I talk about caregivers, I'm talking about people who care for family and friends with chronic illness, disabilities, or aging needs. So these are not paid caregivers like nurses or home care workers. These are people caring for people they love. And I think a lot of people don't realize how much work caregivers do. You know, on a daily basis, life can be tough. We know that, especially, and and you're talking about being unpaid, so we could have elderly parents in this case, or you could have kids that are sick, or, you know, maybe a sibling or a brothers or sisters. Um, when we hear 8 million Canadians, some people may be surprised by that. I would suspect that you're not. No, because I'm a family doctor, so I see caregivers who come into my office with my patients, and I see how hard they work, and and how burnt out some of them get. 31% of caregivers in British Columbia report caregiver distress, and across Canada, between 20 and 40% of caregivers report feeling depressed. They have a lot of stresses on them in addition to taking care of their loved one. Many of them hold a full-time job. Now, uh, joining us as well to talk about uh, this particular issue is uh, a mom who lives not too far from us in Milton. Her name is uh, Shannon Costanzo, and uh, she uh, joins us here on CHML. How are you tonight, Shannon? Oh, are you there? Cell phone, it sounds like it's a little... Are you there, Shannon? Oh, yes, I am. There I'll you go. Better reception. There you go. So let's uh, talk about your story. I understand uh, you're a young mom, you live in Milton, and your daughter has cystic fibrosis. Kind of talk about your daughter's story, if you will. Okay, my daughter's named Caitlin. She 
is seven years old, um, and she was born with cystic fibrosis. It's a rare genetic disease, and it's one of the few that are tested through the newborn screening. Um, so we found out when she was about nine days old, we got the call that she had that, and we were transferred down to Sick Kids Hospital, where we're followed now and receiving excellent care. So she requires a lot of daily treatments and medications that take up quite a bit of time. And one of the main things is preparing her meals that require high fats, high proteins, high caloric intake, uh, which is kind of an odd diet. Most of us are, are trying to strive for a low-fat, low-carb, mm-hmm. low-calorie diet. So it's hard to balance her diet um, with the rest of the family, as well as needing everything to be extremely clean and um, sanitized for her as well to keep her healthy. She's how old now? She's seven. She's seven. Um, I understand that your story was uh, filmed for the Stories for Caregiver uh, website. Now, the first question, was there any reticence from you on having what you go through on a daily basis? Was there reticence in you being a part of that, like basically having the film people there intruding on your lives almost? It was actually quite interesting and exciting. Um, Caitlin really enjoyed kind of being in the spotlight. And so for her to be, she's a rather shy young girl. So to see her confidence kind of come out on that was really welcoming. And the film crew and Dr. Lou were so welcoming and helpful. It was really a great experience for our whole family. Dr. Lou, can you talk about how you ended up getting involved with uh Shannon, was it her reaching out to you on your website, or was it a, a referral? Kind of talk about how, how the two of you uh, hooked up. We reached out to Shannon through the Cystic Fibrosis Canada Association. And I believe, Shannon, you've worked with them before in the past. And yes. Yes. So Shannon um, is very well-spoken, and she was the perfect candidate for our show. Now, uh, let's, uh, when people go to their website, uh, Stories for Caregivers, what, um, what can they expect, Dr. Lou? What can they see? So on the website, there are three web series. They're sort of like mini documentaries. Our show is called House Call. And what we do in our show is we meet with caregivers and we talk to them and try to find a challenge that we might be able to help them solve. And for Shannon... One of her challenges, as she mentioned, is is finding time to cook for Caitlin in addition to everyone else in her family. So we connected her with a chef who gave her some tips on cooking simply and very more more quickly, more effectively. And similarly, in other episodes on our show, we deal with issues like self-care. And in one issue, we deal with uh, a son who moves into his mom who has a hoarding problem and who is at risk of fall. So just different kinds of solutions for caregivers. There are two other web series, and those ones are more documentary web series. So they more document the story of the caregivers without intervening as much as we do in our show. Now, is this something, Dr. Liu, was this uh, seed planted uh, an idea from you, or was it from a colleague, or was it... Uh, I, I'm always fascinated how these things happen and, and how they come about. We have a fund in British Columbia called the TELUS Fund. This is a not-for-profit fund at arm's length from TELUS, and they fund healthcare programming. And they put out a call for creators looking for stories about caregiving. So we submitted our proposal as a possible story about caregiving, and we got selected among a group of creators. 
Our guest on uh, CHML tonight is uh, our Dr. Yvette Liu and Shannon Costanzo. Shannon is a mother from Milton whose daughter has cystic fibrosis. Dr. Yvette Liu is uh, involved with the website storiesforcaregivers.com. Shannon, we'll go back to you. Um, talk about uh, the physical part of it is one thing on a daily basis, uh, cooking for your family, what have you, but what about the mental strain? There must have been times where you thought to yourself, I'm a little overwhelmed and I don't know if I can do this. Absolutely. I think from the day of the diagnosis, uh, as a parent, finding out that your child has a shortened life expectancy and will need round-the-clock care is extremely overwhelming and scary. And I have to admit that probably daily I have those thoughts in my mind that I don't know if I'm cut out to do this. I don't know if I'm the right person to keep my daughter alive and well and safe. It's a very overwhelming feeling daily. Now, um, what type of support? Like, There's the website, which, of course, offers advice and what have you, and, and they did the video, but what other su- support systems are there for you and for people like yourself? And Cystic Fibrosis Canada is a great support. There's networks of parents of children with CF and parents of adults with CF as well that we get together for meetings. We try to reach out and connect with each other. We run a national walk in May every year where we get together. The tricky part about cystic fibrosis is the kids aren't allowed to be close to each other due to infection control policies. So it is a very isolating illness. Um, but we do our best through online chat rooms, um, and the doctors as well at Sick um, Hospital are great in support as well. What about now um, schools? I, I know that that's the whole other issue, uh, packing uh, lunches and what have you, and uh, you're always worried about, I guess, germs and everything else. But, but talk about what goes through on a daily basis for you getting your daughter ready for education. Education has been a challenge. Caitlin's in grade two right now in Milton, and it's been a challenge to get the school board to understand the importance of her medication and to have it with her in the classroom as opposed to locked up in the office. She needs to have access to her medication three times a day. So, and she can administer the medication herself, which is not typical of a seven-year-old to be able to swallow pills. So it's really difficult to get the school to understand um, that she's capable of doing this herself, as well as every morning she wakes up, she has to do 30 to 45 minutes of physical therapy. Then she packs a high-calorie full of lunch with all her medication that she needs for the day. She comes home from school. We have to make sure she washes her hands really well. She does another hour and a half of therapy before she goes to bed at night, as well as other medications that she may be on as well. So, you know, from morning to night, it's constant medication and therapy and making sure that she's well. Is, is she a sociable child with friends, what have you? How How is the, uh, uh, the surrounding people at school with her? Yeah, she's a very social little girl. She also does gymnastics and ballet and jazz and art class. She's very creative. And she has her circle of friends. Where it gets tricky is when friends want to go to an indoor playground in the middle of flu season that we have to regretfully decline due to risk of germs and infection, especially with this year's flu. It's a very scary thought of, you know, being in places that could hurt her or or potentially put her at risk of the flu. So um, it's hard to say no to some of her social events, and it's hard for her to understand at seven why she can't participate sometimes. So that's hard as a mom to try to wrap my head around those kinds of things. What's it like uh, for her, um, for example, birthday parties, celebrations, other friends' parties, or what have you? Is that uh, tough as well? 
It is. Anytime we go into a large group of people, we need to make sure that everybody's there as well. We've had to miss out on family Christmases or family birthday parties because somebody, you know, has a cold or somebody, you know, isn't feeling well or has a bad cough. So we're usually the ones that stay back because of that. Um, or sometimes we go to a public place for a birthday party and she's taking her medication and some of the kids ask questions. Oh, why is she taking medicine? Is she sick? Or you know, so Caitlin has to field those questions and answer that to the best of her ability. And we try to encourage her to do that as her parents, to have the confidence to own cystic fibrosis and, and feel confident about it. Uh, Dr. Lou, I'm, I'm on your website as we speak, and I'm, I'm amazed at the number of stories and people sharing their, their stories. There doesn't appear to be a lot of res- uh, reticence from people who want to help out and have gone public with whatever story they, they have. That must make you feel very, very grateful. I think it's wonderful that people have been able to share their stories because this will reduce the sense of isolation among caregivers, and it also encourages caregivers to share resources. One of the big problems is that a lot of caregivers don't actually realize that they're caregivers and that they have access to resources. A study in the UK showed that 54% of caregivers took over one year to recognize their caregiving role, and 24% took over five years to identify as a caregiver. And when caregivers don't self-identify, then they're not able to empower themselves, and they can miss out on resources that are available in the community. And this can lead to long-term physical health effects, mental health effects, and even financial and social consequences if they don't access care early. So on the website, we encourage people to sign up and post their own stories in addition to watching these inspiring stories that we filmed. And hopefully we can build a caregiving community on the, on the site and use it as a hub. Now, Dr. Lou, you are a family physician, and we've talked uh, Shannon's story about kids, but let's kind of flip this the other way now. Um, Do you have a lot of people reaching out that they need help? They feel overwhelmed because, for example, they could be in their 40s or 50s, and now they are taking care of elderly aging parents. Mm -hmm. And we have some people called sandwiched caregivers as well. They're taking care of not only their parents, but also children, So definitely I do see this a lot in my office. And in BC, we have an organization called the Family Caregivers of BC, and they have resources, support lines, and help for unpaid caregivers. I believe in Ontario it's called the Ontario Caregivers Coalition. And that's available for caregivers in Ontario to reach out to if they feel like they're stuck, or even if they just want to find out about more resources. Is it too simplistic, Dr. Liu, to say that people have to take care of themselves before that they can take care of somebody else, and they probably don't want to step away and say, you know what, I need some time for myself. Uh, Is that a big problem as well? It is. All caregivers do it out of love, and sometimes because they're working so hard to care for their loved one, they forget to care about themselves. I often use the analogy of being on an airplane when the oxygen masks fall down. You always have to put on your own mask before you can put on the person that you're helping's mask. And you, it, if you take care of yourself, you become a better caregiver for the other person. Four of our episodes in House Call deal with self-care, which means taking care of yourself. And what we did was we helped the people, the caregivers in the episode, find different ways of self-care that they would enjoy the most. So in one episode, we helped Carol go to goat yoga because she'd been really wanting to do yoga and she really loves animals. So we thought that goat yoga, which is yoga in a field with goats, Mm -hmm. would be a good solution for her. In another one, we connected our caregiver with a physiotherapist 
and sent them on a walk in nature to take the benefits of the healing power of nature and, in addition, help her learn some simple physical exercises that she can do on her own in nature or in her home. So we wanted to find simple solutions that other people can benefit from while watching the show. Uh, Dr. Lou, I, I know that you uh, go cross-country to talk to other uh, particular um, caregivers, physicians, what have you. I'm, I'm, I'm really fascinated by this. Will you or are, are you making a plan on uh, hitting southern Ontario at some point in the next little while? Well, if we do another season, we'll definitely come back to Ontario. <laughs> So, so what uh, happens then? Now you have to apply for the funding again for another season? Yes, exactly. So hopefully we'll get a lot of people coming on the site. And if we can show that the site has made a meaningful impact in people's lives, which I'm sure it will, then we'll be able to reapply back to the TELUS Fund, which is the fund that funds healthcare programming, and, and make a second season. Before we wrap up, our uh, guest uh, mom from Milton, Shannon Costanzo, whose uh, daughter has cystic fibrosis. Uh, she's seven years old now. Uh, when you feel overwhelmed, Shannon, and, and you talked about it as well almost on a daily basis, and you talked about the cystic fibrosis uh, people, is there another type of a group um, that is going through this, parents, what have you, that, that you know you can lean on when times are really, really tough? Yes, I have my family, of course. I, I live in Milton, which is a small community, and, and my family also live in Milton with me. So I lean on my family quite a lot. Um, but also cystic fibrosis is a small community, and so we do connect over emails and Facebook groups and what have you. Um, so I do feel I can lean on those other mothers for support as well. And I think that doing this caregiver series with Dr. Liu, the one thing that I took away was that it's, okay to actually recognize myself as a caregiver instead of just a mom trying to take care of my daughter. I never really saw myself in the role as a caregiver. I was just doing what I thought every mother did. So to recognize that I am a caregiver and that I do need to recognize myself that way has been a huge step in dealing with my life on a daily basis. So I thank Dr. Lou for that. Shannon Costanzo, we wish you uh, all the best uh, as, as you go through um your fight with your daughter uh, with cystic fibrosis. Thank you for taking the time, Dr. Yvette Liu. Uh, the website is called storiesforcaregivers.com. It is loaded with all kinds of information and support. Congratulations on what you're doing for the both of you. Thank you for joining us, and, uh, and let's stay in touch. Have a great night. Thank you Thank so you. much. Wow, there you have it. Um, fascinating look at uh, what people go through on a daily basis in one form or another. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Seems to be coming more prevalent in society, maybe because people are now more comfortable about going public with their story. Joining us is Chantal McCullough, who has a website dedicated to and about anxiety. First of all, Chantal, thank you for joining us. It's such a pleasure to talk to you. Hi, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. So let's uh, start off. Uh, you're... The first thing on your website is you have a, a line, suffering from anxiety is a serious drag. It can be completely debilitating, and with the highest cost of prescription meds and therapy, it can feel like there's no hope for healing. Was this uh, that first uh, paragraph kind of based on your own personal experience? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think anyone with anxiety can relate to the fact that it just really sucks. <laughs> um, you know, it can 
really control your life if you're not careful about it and smart with the choice with the things you do to kind of help yourself. So, yeah, definitely my own personal experience. I've had anxiety since I was seven, so I've kind of, you know, learned that it it, it is a big drag. <laughs> you actually bring up an interesting point. When you say that, that you've had it since the age of seven, uh, did you, well, maybe not at the age of seven, you wouldn't, but did your parents notice that there was something a little different uh, in your behavior at the age of seven that made them realize that, you know what, Chantel's got a problem? Yes, my mom actually had anxiety growing up. So right away she was like, yeah, that's that's what this is. You know, I was getting sick going to public places. I was making up excuses. Anytime we had to go to a restaurant, I was like, oh, no, feeling good, I can't go. Um, so right away she knew the excuses and the not feeling well, the patterns. She, she knew right away that it was anxiety. You know, you know, it's interesting because I think back now, um, and uh, I'm not nearly as young as you are, but I think back <laughs> to my high school, or my, never mind my high school days, probably my days in like grade seven, grade eight, and then grade nine, which was absolute hell for me. And I think to myself now that I probably had a bad case of anxiety or what have you then, but it wasn't diagnosed. What was it that your parents finally realized like you talked about not wanting to go to restaurants or what have you did they finally say to you you know what we have to get this taken care of yeah there were definitely a couple times where as my parents probably wanted to rip their like hair out they were just probably losing their mind um, so initially it got to a point where okay well you have anxiety and we need to get you into counseling and then as i got older there were times when it was like you know, you need to go back to the doctors. This is getting worse, and and my life really was not good. You know, I couldn't even go on field trips with my class. You know, I didn't have a job. I couldn't work because I was terrified. So, the moments where it was like this is going to ruin your life if you don't get it fixed is kind of when they were like, "Yeah, you're getting extra help." <laughs> So um, you, from all that, have formed a, a website which you, you manage. It's called Anxiety Gone. Tell us about that, because th that's a very simplistic, great line, but it's not just as easy to say Anxiety Gone, is it? It's not, and it is. It's actually interesting because I find the one thing you need to do to get rid of anxiety is literally just feeling the fear and doing it anyways. Like, that's what healing comes down to. Obviously, that's much easier said than done. So, Anxiety Gone, I created that just to kind of share my experiences with anxiety because growing up, like I said, I have had anxiety since I was seven, I'm 28 now, and I never thought I could be successful. I never thought I could have a good life. I never thought I could have a nice home, a nice relationship, any of those things. I just was never... I never thought I could have those because in the eyes of society, I was not normal and I couldn't have normal things. So as I grew up and kind of tackled this stigma, I was like, you know, I want to show other people that they can also live a great life. Anxiety doesn't dictate your destiny. It doesn't control your, where you're going in life or your future or your success. So starting anxiety gone to just kind of teach people what I've been doing to get to where I am today and also show them I'm living proof that there is more to 
to this horrible feeling. You know, it, uh, when you talk about uh, you didn't think that you'd be good enough to own a home or relationship or what have you, uh, was that mm-hmm. was that an anxiety thing or was that a self-esteem thing or was it a combination of both that one led to the other? Um, you know, it's as odd as it is, I've never had a self-esteem thing or a confidence thing, so it could definitely be a combination of both, but I think it was definitely mostly anxiety because I couldn't work, you know, and I did have a job. Once I was able to, it was a crappy job and one that didn't pay well. And the idea of leaving that job just made me so anxious. So I always thought I'd be at the bottom of the barrel. No matter what happened, that's where I would be. And that's kind of what I expected of my own life. And I think that goes hand in hand with mental illness. You know, on, on your website, Anxiety Gone, you break down a whole bunch of questions and what have you. One of the things I found interesting is uh, on, on your website, which we can mention in a sec, you say an anxiety attack gets triggered, a panic attack does not. People may be surprised by that. Kind of explain that, because that is really fascinating to me. Yeah, you know what? When I wrote that article, it was surprising to me too, um, because I have anxiety and I have panic disorder. So anxiety is known for being triggered. So something, a situation, a person, a conversation, something makes you anxious. Whereas through research, I found out that a panic disorder or a panic attack, that can happen no matter what. It, it, you don't have to be in an uncomfortable situation or something that makes you anxious. So that's like a big difference, and I think it's important to know the differences because there are so many different types of anxiety because once you know what you kind of are dealing with, then you can find the right techniques to help yourself overcome them. Interesting as well that, that that you say the anxiety goes away when the stressor does. So, for example, if you talk about facing your fears, so to speak, uh, the example you use, if you go to the grocery store, that triggers your anxiety. The second you're out of the store, the anxiety subsides. However, you have to go to the grocery store. So how do you, if you will, face the fear that you know may cause an anxiety attack? Yeah, that's the hardest part. The whole thing is feel the fear, accept the fear, but do it anyways. So still go to that grocery store. And the whole thing with Anxiety Gone is I provide techniques and tips on how to kind of maintain your anxiety symptoms so that they don't make you run out of the store screaming and, you know, vowing to never go back. (laughs) Um, You really just have to keep doing it, which is so, so easy to say. But it really is just feeling the fear, being like, okay, this is just anxiety, it's just a feeling, I'm fine, and doing it anyway. You know, there's a whole bunch of stuff uh, on your website when you go through panic attack systems, uh, symptoms. A lot of them seem like, I don't want to say normal everyday stuff, but there's excessive sweating, trembling or shaking, difficulty breathing, nausea, chest pain. Um, it's interesting that that you can have those symptoms as a panic attack but a lot of people would think that there's something else wrong with them that those physical symptoms kind of manifest themselves in in many different ways don't they oh for sure and there are also because they are so physical there are very very physical symptoms which i find is a misunderstanding with mental illness um but there are there are many times when anxiety leads into this feeling that you are convinced you are very sick, you are dying, because the, the symptoms are so physical. 
What was it like for you when you finally, um, you talked about from the age of seven, um, when you, I don't want to use the term went public, but, but finally was open about the fact that you do have anxiety attacks and sometimes panic attack symptoms as well? You know, I, growing up, I was never ashamed of having anxiety. I was like, hi, I'm Chantel, and I have anxiety. Like, it, it was so normal because it was my entire life since I was seven. I think what's changed now is that people understand what I'm saying when I tell them I have anxiety, and they kind of know how to help me through situations. But I find, found as I, as I got older, that's really where I started getting online and helping other people be, see all these stories out there that are much worse than mine and you know I really want to just help them and that's kind of um, you know how I guess you can say going public and it, it has helped me in that way where I have been able to help other people kind of help myself as well. Oh, I wanted to ask um, if the anxiety issue because to me hosting a lot of these shows about mental health and wellness and what have you this is a bigger issue than maybe people think it is and it seems to me in some ways my line is everybody's got something i know that could be a little mm-hmm. too a little too simplistic but it, is that your sense that there's more and more and more people that are battling something and maybe now they're realizing that they should go uh, and do something about it Yes, I think that's exactly it. A lot of people say, you know, mental illness is so more common now, and I don't necessarily know that it's more common um, other than maybe it's just more people are being aware of what's going on and are willing to accept what's going on and possibly diagnosis. Um, I think social media does play a huge part. I often say, like, get off social media. Like, if you don't have to be on it, you know, it's horrible for you. Um, but I, I don't know if people, more people have it or more people are just being accepting of it. What's the website, what's the response been like uh, to this when you uh, started the Anxiety Gone uh, website and uh, you started to post uh, tips and what have you? Uh, people always send in feedback and comments. What was that like for you? Oh, my gosh. Um, it really made me feel like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I want my career to be. The feedback was amazing. I really love being that person that people can reach out to because I have a lot of people saying my family doesn't understand my friends don't understand I don't have anyone I'm in a small town my doctor doesn't believe in mental illness and just having that kind of feedback where I know I am helping one person that's enough for me and uh, it's actually really nice to see these messages I get like oh, you know, I finally got on a plane like you said I could, and I, I did it, and I'm so proud of myself, and that is just, it's just like, okay, this is exactly what I need to be doing, where I need to be, and just giving people strength and hope that, you know, it's not the end, just because they have anxiety. And we should mention, of course, the website is, uh, well, I'll tell you what, you give the website address if people are, are curious about uh, getting some sort of uh, information and maybe some feedback from you. Okay, so the website is anxiety-gone.com, and pretty easy to remember. You just got to get that dash in there. <laughs> so anxiety-gone.com. Dot com. All right. Yeah. Uh, so, so before we, we wrap up, uh, by the way, our guest is Chantal McCullough, who is uh, heading up the website uh, about anxiety called Anxiety Gone. People are listening to this, and I know that uh, you want them to basically go to your website to get information, but sometimes they have to realize that maybe 
there is help out there. What's your advice to people that are thinking to themselves, you know what, all the symptoms you talk about, I think I have a problem. What's your advice? Uh, my advice is to just accept that you have anxiety. I wouldn't say it's a problem. I don't like the term mental illness because I don't think you're sick. Uh, I like to say that anxiety is just a part of you. And um, I wouldn't, my advice would probably be to just change your mindset from a negative, I have an illness or a problem to, I have anxiety, this is who I am. It makes me quirky. It makes me pay attention to detail. And, um, you know, just kind of go on the website, read some things, read how to manage and cope with your symptoms, and, uh, you know, just kind of learn, relearn a new life. Always, uh, it's always a pleasure for me to hear from somebody who uh, faces something head on and takes what could be a problem and uh, and uh, turns around and helps other people. Chantal McCullough, you're an inspiration. Thanks for taking the time and congratulations on what you're doing. And, and hopefully we'll talk soon about uh, your, your website and how much information you're giving to people. Thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. Fascinating look at uh, somebody who went public with her story, and there you have it. Anxiety-gone.com is the website to go to, and uh, there are, um, there's a lot of information as well. The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.